The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Heather Stewart. As the European governments attempt to stop the spread of a sovereign debt crisis, the managing director of the IMF is behind bars this week. We'll look at the astonishing developments in New York and their impact on international finance. In whatever he's done over the last few days at the IMF, he did actually move it in a more progressive direction over the last three or four years. Also this week, two months after a series of disasters hit northern Japan, we'll look at its economic recovery and what the country's economists are really worried about, a rapidly ageing population. This is the moment you should watch Japan very closely. Plus, coming up later, we'll hear from Google's chief economist on, well, why Google needs a chief economist. We have a lot of data. Somebody has to make sense of that data. A lot of that data has to do with prices, with quantities, with revenue, with choices. And so we need an economics group to analyze this data. But this week... The world of international finance and politics has been transfixed by one event in New York. This morning, Dominique Strauss-Kahn is waking up in an 11 by 13 foot jail cell on Rikers Island after a judge denied him bail for now. The arrest of Dominique Strauss-Kahn on charges of serious sexual assault has led to calls for him to stand down as the IMF's managing director and left his plans to run for the French presidency in ruins. Well, joining me now is The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. Larry, it's an extraordinary development, but it's worth reminding people that Strauss-Kahn denies all the allegations. DSK, as he's known, was due in Europe this week, where the IMF has been needed to bail out Greece, Ireland, Portugal and possibly Greece again. Will his detention have any impact on those deals, do you think? I think they will, yes. I think Strauss-Kahn was pretty pivotal in all these negotiations and he, he knew what was going on there. And I think he actually probably acted as a, as a break on some of the more extreme policies that would have been imposed on these countries had he not been around. And By their fellow Eurozone yeah, countries, you mean? No, that's not yeah. to say that these, these policies are, are mild. They're not, but I think they're probably less extreme than they would have been without Strauss-Kahn being there. I think you know, whatever he's done uh, in his private life over the last few days at the IMF, he did actually move it in a more progressive direction over the last three or four years. Talked about jobs rather than just structural adjustment programs, and you know, talked to him. He allowed countries to impose capital control, so he did move it in a different direction. And I think that he acted as a sort of ameliorating force on some of the more you know, hard-line European countries, most notably Germany, had a very good relationship with Merkel. So I think that he was important, and his 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 absence will will be quite telling. Mm. And uh, we already knew that, that there were people jockeying for the succession. We knew that Gordon Brown, for example, perhaps hoped to have his hat in the ring. Do you, who do you think is most likely to, to succeed Strauss-Kahn now? That it's well, I think the jockeying for, for the job has already started, to be frank. I mean, everybody expected Strauss-Kahn to announce next month that he was going to run for the French presidency. So it's not as though the runners and riders weren't already preparing for a trot around the paddock to see who would support them. I mean, I think the, there are two issues. One is, does this job, again, go to European? You know, there's been a stitch-up ever since 1944 that the Europeans get the get the fund and the Americans get the bank, uh, and that's supposed to have ended. I mean, it's, it's supposed to now be open and transparent uh, leadership contest, and there's a lot of developing countries who think that the time has come, given the importance of the emerging world for a developing country 
finance minister or central bank governor or academic to get the job um, and that's quite a strong I think quite a strong case for that on the other hand the Europeans and the Americans have still got the votes at the fund if they want to use them and the Europeans are pretty keen on the next candidate being a European so that they can help sort out the European debt crisis because the focus of what the fund's doing has moved quite sharply from the developing world to the developed world over the last 12 months so I think the Europeans in the end will probably have their way and it will be a European. The question then is what sort of European is it going to be? Christine Lagarde's been mentioned, although... The French finance minister. Yeah, the French finance minister. She's been mentioned as, as a possibility, although in France does seem to monopolise the job and some of the other European countries might object to that. Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president, might actually not want Lagarde to go. Uh, it's quite possible that the Germans will, I think, say it's our turn to have somebody at the fund and the Germans would probably want someone who was quite hard line. So that would be quite you know, that would be an interesting development and might not be such good news for countries like Greece and Portugal and Spain or and uh, and Ireland and Spain assuming that at some point they, they get run into trouble, of course at the moment they're not. But I mean for the for the for the deficit countries, for the indebted countries, having a Having a hardline German running the fund might not be the best of news. And what does this mean, do you think, for, for what we used to call the Washington Consensus, the, 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 the sort of policies of, of liberalism and financialization and privatisation? I mean, if, the, if, the, if the Europe and the US are still hanging on to the, the heads of the fund and the bank, does that mean that those ideas still kind of hold sway in Washington? Do you well, think? I think it will really depend on who is chosen to run the fund. And I think possibly we're looking at this from the wrong end of the telescope in that people are saying well who's acceptable to whom and should we have a developing country candidate or a European candidate rather than saying what do we actually want the fund to do and there's a plenty of unfinished business in the running of the global economy post the crisis I mean let's face it you know there's lots and lots of structural problems in the global economy it's unbalanced there's been no real reining in of the financial sector there's no early warning system there's no real pack for growth and that and in those in that respect Gordon Brown would be quite a strong candidate because he has got he is running on a fairly progressive reform the fund agenda. His problem, I think, is that he you know he doesn't have the full backing or any backing from from his own government, which I think could be a handicap, although perhaps not an insuperable one. And if it goes to European, Britain is not a eurozone country, so that might be a handicap. But in terms of the of of who's equipped to to pursue a sort of non Washington consensus agenda brown would be quite a strong candidate and you you could argue that panning it to a sort of orthodox economist from a developing country which is what would probably happen mm. might not, studied in the states no doubt who studied yeah. in chicago and mm. was well versed in milton friedman and rational expectations theory and so on might not be the best idea best thing that ever happened to the fund at, at this stage it might actually although in some ways it would be good for its governance uh, it would be bad news for its policies um, and i think that is that is the real issue larry elliott there Now, back in March, the world watched on with horror and helplessness as an earthquake, followed by a tsunami, followed by a nuclear emergency, hit northern Japan. The third richest country in the world, with some of the most advanced engineering and technology, was no match for forces of nature. As the reconstruction effort continues, though, Japanese economists are focusing on another powerful force of nature, demographics and an ageing population – Well, earlier I went down to the Japanese embassy to speak to Kosuke Motani, senior vice president of the Development Bank of Japan. I began by asking him about the economic recovery from this year's disaster. 
the area hit by tsunami was a rather remote area with less population and less industry. But uh, because the earthquake was so big, about 12% of the Japanese production site was affected initially, but it, they were not broken down. I mean, tsunami didn't destroy, so um, they recovered after a few weeks quickly. So talking about private sector production, it's not so big influence. If the other part of Japan was hit by tsunami, it were hit by tsunami, the influence were huge. But this time, it was so lucky. Okay, but talking about the government, okay, government is also a big player in the economy. So our government has to uh, get money to or for the restoration of the region because many human beings are living there and we have to sustain their loving and also, our, the main industry was fishery, and uh, they need, we have to reconstruct it. It was all destroyed. The area producing very expensive products like shark fin and the abalones and those things actually exported to China. And uh, it spends maybe takes a few more years to recover and reconstruct. And our government have to get money somehow, maybe by increasing tax or something. Mm-hmm to recover the expense, then that will affect the economy later on. Mm. And almost one thing I have to add is the nuclear power station problem. Mm-hmm. It's not fixed yet. I mean, uh, the, it's not uh, bursting out. But it, we have, we can't, so far, we have not succeeded to cool it down. I mean, uh, it takes more, at least a few, mo- a few more months or maybe a few years. We're not, we're not sure. But unless that, we cannot say it's reconstructed so fully. And people's mind is affected negatively. But if you just finish it up, then people, people will become more confident uh, and personal consumption maybe will rise. Yeah, so it's still an ongoing situation. So the impact in terms, for example, of GDP figures, I think we're, we're going to see the first GDP figures from the first quarter later this yes. week. The, the impact, do you think, will be a sharp very decline? Severe, yes. It should be very severe because the first month, maybe, many productions stopped because the, the, those factories that didn't attack, wasn't, that were not attacked by tsunami also stopped because of the lack of electricity and also uh, some highways we had to mend. And also Shinkansen trains stopped for a few, month, a few weeks. Yeah, so those kind of things right, freeze the economy. So obviously the GDP, uh, current GDP, fell down so fast. Then, then we'll see the quick, very drastic recovery. But in average, maybe it will be as if the same, I mean, as if there was no earthquake. I mean, maybe after one year, it's, about, it's like a Lehman shock. It's about the same as if there was, there was nothing happened. Uh, in Japan, that Lehman shock was like that. I mean, you know, that different from Europe. So similar thing happens maybe to Japanese GDP. I think a lot of countries would say they wish they they had uh, had the same response to the Lehman crisis as, <laughs> as that. But um, your talk today, which was based on your book, The Silver Tsunami, which I understand has sold 500,000 copies, which is extremely impressive for an economics book in any part of yeah, the world. Yeah, but yeah. but your view is that Japan is facing a much longer term and a much more serious problem. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit ab- about that. Yes. In one word, it's aging. But what is aging? In Japan, it's a baby boomer getting older, but will not die until, in average, maybe until they will become 85 years old. Mm. We are the country with the longest life expectancy in the world. <laughs> and so uh, baby boomers are now going around, they're around 60s, okay? They're still tough and young and they're working. Mm. But late, 20 years later, 30 years later, they will be over 80 but they they have to you know they need a more medical service and they don't pay taxes, 
So less kids coming up into the rural economy and many more people retiring. And that's a real cause of many economic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, it's not decreasing the supply. I mean, production is automated fully. And um, we are very, we, a lot of genius in, are in Japan that we can make it more efficient. <laughs> so without people, our service level is very high, I think. If you visit Japan, you see how fast people work and they respond. Mm. It's very, very efficient. So our supply will not decrease, but demand will decrease because more and more people get retired, stop buying things. Sales of many companies has been decreasing because you know, their main customers are now retiring. So they had to cut the wage to prepare for the less production. Mm. Then the, you know, those young people getting less wage will not buy many things. Mm. It's a shrinking, shrinking mar- domestic market. Mm. That's a real problem in Japan. Mm. And what about inheritance? I thought that was a very interesting aspect of what you yes. talked about. We, we might think that these, these rich, wealthy, older Japanese would, would pass on some of their wealth to their children, and, and that would help. Why, why, why is that not the solution? Yes, because Japanese people live too long. <laughs> Okay, our average life expectancy is so long, so average age that you receive your money from your dying parents, finally, is uh, when you get 60, 70 years old, in average, you can, you can just expect to get money from your parents. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with your money, getting, you know, inheriting money with, when you're 67? Mm-hmm. Maybe you will save it, yeah. because you don't, you don't know how old you will love. Mm-hmm. So uh, that money doesn't go into the rural world. And we have inheritance tax, actually. Mm-hmm. But only 4% Japanese pay inheritance tax. Mm-hmm. It's very limited. Only super rich pay a little. Mm-hmm. So usual people with usual financial assets have so many. It's not going to pay anything. So it just remains in the family. It's like a burying money <laughs> onto the ground. Listening to this from Europe, we might think, well, you know, Japan has specific problems. You know, an aging society, that's something you have to deal with. But, but you think there are lessons also for, for other societies, including Europe, do you? Yes. Japan is not an exception at all. It's the first one. But everybody's following the same track. China's working age population will start decreasing maybe five years later, four to five years later. And uh, their senior age population triples in the next 30 years. Singapore, even though, even though they are welcoming a lot of foreign immigrants, all foreign immigrants will become rich and they have longer life expectancy and they don't have kids. So Singapore's senior citizen population triples in the next 20 years when their working age population decreases maybe 10 to 20%, even though they are still welcoming in, getting a lot of foreign immigrants. Without foreign immigrants, they, maybe they will lose maybe 30% in the next 20 years. So it's common in Europe too. Even UK, you are welcoming many foreign immigrants, but what's happening to the Eastern Europe? They are like now have less and less kids, and so your source, okay, of human capital, wool is about the drying up. So uh, yeah, you have Africa, but I don't know about what happens going to be Africa. But if they will prosper, they will see the same situation. Yes, so it's a universal problem that Japan is facing for the first time, but watch Japan. How do we cope with that, or how do we fail it? Then uh, you can learn a lot from Japan. Don't neglect it. This is the moment you should watch Japan very closely. Mr. Musali, thank you very much. The internet and the information age have done much to revolutionise the world of finance and economics. The data that is vital for making investment decisions has never been more widespread and available, 
And the more information everyone has, the better markets work, so massive crashes are less likely to occur. That was the theory, anyway. But has it survived the economic crisis of 2008? Aditya Chakraborty spoke to Google's chief economist, Hal Valerian. The private sector has real-time information. The public sector has very delayed information. And so the public sector is kind of acting at a disadvantage in responding to some of these things. There was a nice talk by the CEO of J.P. Morgan who said, how many of you became more cautious after Lehman Brothers? Half the audience raises their hand. He said, you're the ones that caused the recession. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. He was right. So the point is, the investment banks and the banking sector felt the impact of this probably quicker than the Federal Reserve did. I mean, they were, you know, they, they came to the Federal Reserve, but then the, the repercussions that rippled through the system, I think, came as something of a surprise to the Fed. Because the Fed did not have as good a real-time information system as, the, as Goldman Sachs. But if I, were to, if I were to actually take that argument at face value, then I'd say that the private sector failed to act on that. And so what went wrong? Because the private sector had all this information. What did it do? It failed to act on it in time? Well, here's what... Interpret so it? I would say, I would, I would put it a little differently. It was the private sector, of course, they know their piece. Hmm. They know their piece here. The regulator is supposed to know hmm, everything. the whole picture. Yeah. So what happened is, I would say, from the regulatory point of view, they did not realize the extent and the magnitude of the shadow banking system. So you look at all of these companies that were engaged in securitization and were engaged in the derivative transactions and the AIGs of the world who were you know, selling financial contracts that were only rather distantly related to their core business. I think the regulators just didn't know this was going on because it wasn't something that they were supposed to be regulating. They were supposed to be regulating the commercial banking system, not the investment banking system. You know, the whole idea of regulation is I want to take your piece and his piece and his piece and my piece, bring them together, and now we can look at this system as a whole. Well, the, the uh, Federal Reserve System, the Bank of England, the Central Bank, they're only looking at part of the system. I, I think that, that was uh, one of the biggest problems, that it was a lack of information. And so now if information is more available in real time, more accessible to the regulators, ideally that'll help stabilize the system. Companies have chief executives, they have chief financial officers. What's Google doing with the chief economist? Uh, well, it's a, it, I think it just shows how useful economics is because you look at Google, we have a lot of data. Somebody has to make sense of that data. A lot of that data has to do with prices, with quantities, with revenue, with choices. And so we need an economics group to analyze this data. Give me an example of how you work that even my mum could understand. Well, I like to describe my job as I want to answer the questions that management is going to ask next month. So a lot of what we're doing is forward-looking kinds of things where we're dealing with questions involving revenue and involving query volume involving evaluating new products and changes we've made. All of this is done using econometric and statistical methods. So tell us about revealed preferences and how you've managed to make so much money out of that. (laughs) Well, revealed preference means that the things you choose 
are presumably better than the things that you didn't choose because you're trying to choose things that will be most satisfactory to you. Now, one kind of interesting application is if you look at Google, we have a market for all those ads. It's actually structured as an auction. And so the slots or the positions that advertisers occupy in that market are presumably better for them than the other alternatives they could have chosen. So from that very, very simple observation, you can actually learn quite a bit about uh, what revenue looks like, what advertiser profits look like, what the value of Google is to those advertisers, all sorts of surprising things just from that very simple choice model. So you're telling me that just by how much I'm willing to bid for, right. for my advertising slot on a Google page, you can work out all of that? Absolutely, yep. It's, it's really quite remarkable because you know, you've chosen a certain bid or you've chosen to pay a certain amount, but you had all sorts of other alternatives and the fact that you rejected those alternatives in favor of the choice you make that actually conveys quite a bit of information. You do more with economics than just that. Tell us about the Google price index. Ah, right. So there's a case where we have a service called Google Shopping. So when you're looking for particular products, you can enter a query into Google and you'll see a list of products, of prices, merchants that sell that, and so on. And when I saw we'd compiled this big list of prices, I said, why don't we build a price index? So, you know, the hard part is getting the prices. It's really easy to do the calculation once they're all sitting in a database. But one exciting thing about that is you can actually get a price index or an inflation index that is in real time. So you can look at the rate of inflation, not just from month to month, but actually from day to day. How likely is it that the uh, GPI for the UK, for instance, would be different from the RPI that we all look at here? So what happens is there's uh, a difference right away because you consume different kinds of goods online than offline. So we don't sell gasoline online. We don't sell housing online. There's, we're only looking in this example at the price of goods, not at travel or other things of this sort. So you've got a different consumption bundle that you're purchasing online. But one of the things we've been doing recently is we've been trying to weight those online consumptions using the offline weightings that the uh, uh, statistical agencies use. And it turns out there's pretty good agreement when you, when you make that kind of adjustment. Google's chief economist, Hal Valerian there, speaking to a Ditch Attack reporty. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to Larry Elliott, Kasuke Motani, Hal Valerian and Aditya Chakraborty. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.